I wonder if you've ever had this experience before where something is right in front of your face and for the life of you, you can't see it. I can remember a, a Christmas when I was, I don't know, about 10 years old that we're, we're opening presents Christmas morning and my dad says, Patrick, I want you to go downstairs and I want you to make sure the door's locked. I'm like, really? Right now? Okay. Uh, so I wanted to get back to opening presents. So I, I busted as fast as I can and I get on the stairs and, and I can see from the stairs across the room and I can see the, the lock. It's a deadbolt. So I can see very clearly that it's locked. And so I see it, run back upstairs. I'm like, dad, the door's locked. I can see it. Can we open presents again? He's like, well, did you, did you go over and make sure that it's locked? I'm like, dad, I can see it. Like it's locked. He's like, no, I want you, I want you to go over and, and, and actually make sure it's locked. I'm like, man, okay. I want to open presents, but I want to do this so that I can get it done as fast as possible. So I run back down the stairs again and I get over to the door as quickly as I can. And I, and I make sure it's, it's locked just like I thought it was. And I turn around, and as if out of nowhere, magically, a bicycle is sitting right in the middle of the room for me for Christmas. I'd come down the stairs the first time and looked across the room. I didn't even see it. The second time, I walked past it and did not see it until I turned back around. I was so focused on the lock that I, that I didn't see what my dad wanted me to see. And only after turning around did I see it. See, this is something I think the religious leaders are doing as well in our passage. They've been so focused on the temple, so focused on their duty and their sacrifices and the traditions that they have missed somehow that Jesus is the fulfillment of their work. But it's not just that. It's not just a passive missing what God was doing. They are actively rejecting and rebelling against the one that God has sent to save them. They don't see it and they're resisting him and, and turning aside from him so that they could pursue other things. And so as we, as we read our passage and as we hear Stephen's sermon, as he's standing trial before the religious leaders, he's going to make this clear. Our main idea this morning comes right from our text, and it's this. You can't honor Moses if you reject the one that he pointed to. And you can't honor God if you reject his son. So you don't honor Moses when you reject the one that he's pointing to, and you don't honor God when you reject Jesus, his son. And this morning, as we work through our passage we're going to have just a simple breakdown of these three areas where we see that God is active and that Moses then is rejected. And lastly, that Jesus is better as we've been singing already. We're going to see that God is on the move and, and Moses is rejected by his brothers two different times and Jesus is better, a better savior than the one that he's pointing to. So let's ask the Lord to just lead us as we prepare our hearts for this. So Father, please help us be receptive to your word. Help us to, to both see what we're not seeing if, that's, if that is us, but also help us to not resist you and your work. Pray, Father, that we would joyfully receive Christ as our Lord and that we would joyfully uh, desire through the power of your spirit to follow you. 
God, lead us in righteousness. Lead us in the places where we are weak and we can't do it on our own. We need your strength and we need your grace. We love you and and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles open, again, we're in Acts chapter 7. We're going to be reading out of uh, verses 17 through 43. Hear the word of the Lord, brothers and sisters, this morning. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to them, to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And have heard their groanings, and I've come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hands of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us God's who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol. They were rejoicing, and they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away 
and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. The word of the Lord for us this morning, brothers and sisters. So as we look to our text, we, we need to remember that Stephen is on trial here. You know, if you just looked at our text in isolation, you'd be hearing about Moses, but you might forget Stephen is delivering this message as he's on trial really for his life because he's standing before men that want to kill him. And there's a tension in this passage as we, as we read it. You see, the, the religious leaders are guilty. They are guilty of the crime for which they accuse Stephen of committing. They've totally missed the reality that Jesus is both the prophet whom Moses said he was. I'm sorry, that who was the prophet who Moses said was to come, Jesus, and that Jesus is God himself. They missed both those ideas, that Jesus was the prophet to come and that he's God himself. And instead of rejoicing in Jesus, they've rejected and opposed both Jesus and those that he sent. So there's that tension. They're accusing Stephen of the very thing that they are doing. And if we remember from last week, um, Chris told us that there's two main themes in Stephen's speech, and we're in part two of Stephen's speech here. That these, these ideas are helpful for us to remember as, we, as we're studying our passage. The first was this, that the presence of God is not restricted to any particular place. I've summarized it as God is active, but the idea is that God isn't just in one place, but he's active wherever he desires to be active. And the second is this, the people of God have often rejected messengers from God. And we're going to talk about that where we see Moses is rejected. But let's start with the first one, that God is active. God is is moving. His presence isn't restricted, but he's, he's doing a great work. You see, one of the biggest complaints that the religious leaders had against Stephen was that he was speaking against this holy place, the temple. That's what they said he was doing, speaking against the temple. But Stephen has been making it plain that both in the accounts of Abraham and Joseph last week, but also in the story of Moses this week, that God's presence isn't just restrained to one particular place. And Stephen expands this by showing us that holy ground is wherever God is. So it's not just that he's active where he wants to go, but holiness is where God is. And so in recounting the story of Moses, we hear very plainly that God is active in Egypt. If we look to verse 17, Stephen reminds us, even though almost 400 years have passed from the time that God made promises to Abraham and Joseph, he has not forgotten those promises. And as the promises draw near, A baby is born. See, Moses is born at what seems like it is the worst possible time. He's born during a time of intense persecution by Pharaoh, who had sent out an edict that all the little boys of the Israelites would be killed because he was fearful of their numbers. He was fearful of Israel growing stronger, and he wanted to kill all of their sons, these firstborn children. Stephen tells us that Pharaoh forces the Israelites to expose or abandon their children to the elements to put them outside so that they would die of exposure. 
and the cries of both the children and the parents have reached God's ears. It's precisely during this terrible time of infanticide that a little baby Savior is born. See, God chooses as his deliverer a baby. He chooses the, the weak and defenseless. And instead of choosing a full-grown man, a, a man who is a you know, strong warrior, he chooses this little child so that he can show his sovereign power. And the irony of this passage is beautiful. Because God causes Moses to grow up in the house of Pharaoh, the one who is trying to kill him. Pharaoh's own daughter adopts Moses as her son, leading him to be considered a prince of Egypt. One who is instructed in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and his deeds, as verse 22 tells us. Just, as, we, as we see in this passage, we, we hear, we understand God hears the cries of his people. So they're crying out for help, crying out for mercy, crying out for justice. He hears their cries. Brothers and sisters, he hears your cries for those things as well. He doesn't just hear them. He sees you where you are. He hears those cries and he acts because he personally cares for you, including in sending his son to deliver us. He, he knows and he, and he moves and he responds because he loves his people. And so God is active in Egypt, but we remember as well, God's presence isn't limited just to Egypt, but he's also working both in the wilderness and Egypt at the same time. In verse 34, God tells Moses that when he's in the wilderness at Mount Sinai, which is hundreds if not thousands of miles away from Egypt, he says he sees the affliction of his people who are in Egypt. He's heard their groaning and I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. It's like the, the psalmist says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. No matter how high or how far down we are, how, how wide we are, God's presence is with his people. And he's able to minister where he desires to do that. There's nowhere that's too far for you to go that God cannot reach you. And God is able to work in and through you no matter where he might send you. You know, whether it's a backwater, you know, wilderness, whether it's a small church, God can use you and will where he calls you to be. And the third thing we see is the place where God is, is holy ground. Moses is commanded by God in verse 33, when, when God is speaking through a burning bush to remove his sandals from his feet, for the place that he's standing is holy ground. You know, it's not a, it's not a tabernacle or a, a temple that makes a place holy, but it's God that makes it holy. What a cool picture. God can make this wilderness, this scrubby old bush, a place of utmost significance because his presence is there. And it's not just places that, that are made holy by God's presence, but a people are made holy by God's presence as well. 
One of the miracles of the book of Acts is, is that the Holy Spirit has come to indwell believers. So the Spirit who is God himself dwells within those who trust in Christ. Which means that wherever we go is holy because he's there with us. Stephen isn't minimizing the holiness of God or his temple like was, he was being accused of. He's pointing to the reality that Paul makes plain in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, that our bodies, believers, are made a temple of the Holy Spirit within us. This is remarkable. When you think about all of the pageantry and the, the glory and the splendor of the temple and the way it looked and the holiness and the, and the fear and the righteousness of coming into God's presence and him making a way for there to be sacrifice and, and cleansing. The scriptures say that he makes believers temples of the Holy Spirit. We have that holy God indwelling us. If he can take a weak and an ugly bush and make it holy, what can he do to you, a living stone who is being built into a temple for him? See, God's, God's the one that makes things holy. He's the one that's active. He's the one that's moving and serving and leading Moses. And so Stephen is making this completely obvious. I'm not opposed to Moses. I'm showing you that God was the one working in these ways. And so we see God is active, but not just that, that Moses is rejected. And not just once, but he's rejected twice. Remember, Stephen has been accused of blaspheming Moses and God. And so he wants to make the record straight. He wants to set it straight. In essence, he says, let me tell you what I think about Moses. I want you to hear this directly from me so there's no confusion. And then he begins to stack praise upon praise upon praise of Moses, showing how much he honors and reveres Moses. Stephen tells us that Moses was beautiful in God's sight, verse 20. In verse 22, he says that he was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he's mighty in his words and deeds. But he also tells us in 24, he's the deliverer of his brothers, and he's a savior in verse 25. And there's other descriptions as well where he calls him a judge and, and a redeemer, a ruler, all pointing to both his work and a better one who is to come, a better type of Moses. See, Moses was the type of leader that the people were crying out for. He had great wisdom. He was mighty in words and deeds because God favored him. God, God cared about him. But he was also Moses. He was rejected in his attempts to save his brothers. They said they, wanna, they want one to help and to, and to rule over them and lead them, and they yet reject him. In verses 23 through 29, we hear how Moses goes out to defend his people, and he protects one of his brothers from being wronged by killing an Egyptian that was harming him. Stephen shows us that this killing was done as an act of rescue for the Israelites. Verse 25 tells us that Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they, they didn't understand. And the next day, he tries to break up another fight, this time between two Israelites, and, and he's calling them and leading them to reconcile. He's asking and pleading for them to, to not be in you know, fight and conflict. But the aggressor thrust him aside saying, who made you a ruler and a judge 
over us. And we see that it's not just the rejection by this one man here, but this man is, is really a representative of the people's hearts toward Moses. We see that very clearly in verse 35, where it says the people rejected him, not just the one person. So here Stephen is revealing the reason for this history lesson. He's showing that this is one of the ways that Israel has regularly regarded Moses. They have thrust him aside. They have rejected him for the comforts of their own sin. And this theme is repeated in verse 39. They turn aside from him and they run headlong toward their sin. When you think about a a brother or sister or someone coming to you to offer a word of correction to you, do you have a tendency to thrust them aside when they do that? And, And when does that happen? You know, how does that happen? Maybe you thrust them aside when, when you attack them instead of receiving a word of correction with thankfulness from them. Maybe you just don't like the person that's bringing the correction, and so instead you just attack because you don't want to even hear what they have to say. But we also thrust aside, we thrust these corrections aside when we dismiss When we dismiss the correction, instead of listening and and having the word of God shed a light on our actions, maybe you dismiss it because the correction is being brought by your children, who you normally correct, but they're seeing clearly and and calling you out on something, and, and so you just dismiss it. But we also thrust aside our brothers and sisters, those who would who would hope to help us by ignoring their correction because we might excuse it. Or explain it away. Explain away our sin instead of repenting. If you're a believer, ask the question, do I thrust aside the correction that ultimately is for the Lord, from the Lord, and therefore do I miss the warning that God has intended for me? Do you miss the grace extended to you in this warning because you've thrust it aside? You see, the correction that, that God gives through our you know, fellow church members and our family members who, who are pursuing the Lord, this is a means of our sanctification and being made more Christ-like. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. May we be a people who offer faithful wounds to our friends because we love them. But maybe you're not on that end of the spectrum, the receiving Maybe you feel like you have a message that you need to deliver to someone. A word of correction that you feel like God wants you to encourage and challenge them with. But maybe you feel fearful of being rejected. Let me me offer an encouragement to you. Deliver that message anyway. You're not going to be the first one that's been rejected. Even Jesus himself was rejected with the message he brought. But we can trust and know that God always accomplishes his purposes. And so if God is leading you to share a message, let me encourage you to do that, regardless of whether you're rejected or not. So Moses is rejected when he's, he's trying to counsel these brothers, but there's a second rejection of Moses that is worse than the first Moses' first rejection led him to flee to Midian at 40 years old, and the second takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai when he's about 80 years old. As God raised up Moses to be the deliverer of his people, Stephen tells us that he was sent 
as ruler and redeemer. You know, this is very familiar sounding language as we're thinking about this story. But Moses is sent to lead his people out of Egypt. And in verse 36, we hear Moses led the people out doing signs and wonders in Egypt and, and the Red Sea and the wilderness for 40 years. You know, this is shorthand, a shorthand way of Stephen of just reminding us of, of the 10 plagues that God brought upon Egypt or delivering his people through the Red Sea and providing, uh, you know, manna and quail for them as, as food and, and even leading them by pillar of cloud by day and fire at night. That God is with them and has been using Moses to deliver these people. Stephen moves past these quickly, though, to get to his more important point. This Moses who met with God on this holy mountain, the one who has received the oracles of God, do you know what he was rejected for? Stephen's bringing this up. Do you know why, why he was rejected? He was rejected for a golden cow where the people took the gold that was given to them by the Egyptians as a, as a ransom. God provided that for them and they, they melt it down and make a golden calf to worship. And to make sacrifices to. And to rejoice in. It's like Stephen is saying this. You want to accuse me of rejecting Moses' counsel? You know, that's the charges you brought me up for? Here's where Moses was really rejected. And it, and it wasn't by me. It was by all of the people. Stephen wants to connect the people's rejection of Moses to the council's rejection of Jesus. So they would finally see it. That it would be a, a sort of a you are the man type moment where they would say, yeah, that's foolish. And he says, no, you are the man. You are the one who's rejected not just Moses, but the one that Moses is pointing to. He wants them to see what they're not seeing. And he wants them to, to hear and, and turn from their sin in repentance to faith in Christ. He wants them to see that you cannot honor Moses while you are rejecting the one that Moses is pointing to. And you cannot honor God. You can't love God if you are rejecting the one that he sent his son, Jesus. You can't honor God if you reject his son. He's, he's, he's putting this right before them so they would see it. And there's huge similarities between what's happening in this Exodus account. <clears throat> and what has been happening with the Jewish religious leaders. And you just think about what's happening in this like, picture uh, with Moses and the Israelites at the mountain here. Moses is meeting up with God, and, and the people are gathered around the mountain. And God's presence is clearly seen on this mountain. There's, there's smoke and there's fire on top of it. And the people, this is right after, not very long after the people have experienced the deliverance out of Egypt. You know, it's just a few weeks after that. God has delivered them through all of these different things and led them to this point. This scene, which should be the occasion of great rejoicing, is turned to be one of the most despicable pictures in all the Old Testament or in the history of Israel. At the top of the mountain, Moses is meeting with God where God is showing his covenant love to the people. That's happening at the top of the mountain. And at the bottom, the people are making and sacrificing and rejoicing in a golden calf. Think about a, a parallel and a contrast there between what's happening here and down below. The priest at Stephen's trial probably thought that the people at Sinai were fools for their idolatry. 
But they couldn't see how they rejected God when Jesus stood right before them. And they sentenced Jesus to the cross. Their rejection of Jesus was even worse than the rejection of God with the golden calf and these worshipers. And they treat Jesus' follower, Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit, just as shamefully. You know, there's, there's certain things that should cause a righteous indignation to arise in us. And this is one of them. Where this celebration, this occasion for celebrating and honoring God is ruined by the presence of this false idol, this false God, stealing his praise. You know, it'd be like a bride if you're picturing a, a beautiful wedding, neatly adorned, you know, in a beautiful white dress, walking down the aisle toward her groom, smiles on both of their faces. You can, you can just picture this bride walking down the aisle, only for her to stop midway down the aisle, turn to another man and embrace him in a passionate kiss, scorning the man that she was to be wed to. That's sort of like the picture that we see here. You see, in verses 39 through 40, Stephen summarizes these events this way. He says, Our fathers refused to obey Moses, but they thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. So they thrust aside and they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make, for God, make gods for us who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt... We don't know what has become of him. And so they, they thrust Moses aside. And they have their hearts turned back to Egypt saying, make gods who will go before us. You know, this isn't just a rejection of Moses, but it's a rejection of God himself. Because the people's hearts have been turned back to Egypt. Here we see that they prefer if you can believe this, they prefer the steel of slaves' shackles to being free in the presence of God's holiness. They prefer the meat of idolatry to the banquet and feast that God has provided. So we've got to ask the question, how does this, how does this happen? How do they get from there to here? How do we find ourselves as, as believers turning back to the comforts of, of the old sins we used to participate in and, and rejecting what righteousness would require of us? How does this happen? More, more likely than not it's, not, it's not something that happens out of nowhere. In fact, it's probably gradual. It's like a one degree turn of your heart at a time. And then another degree, and another degree, and another degree, and another degree. Until eventually, your heart is turned in a completely different direction. In the Exodus account, over and over, you see the people complain against Moses. And the word used is grumbling. They grumble about food and drink. They grumble about the location that they're in. They grumble against uh, things to drink. They, they grumble against Moses' leadership. Over and over and over, you see them grumble. And with each grumble and complaint, their hearts are turned more and more, degree by degree, from the Lord back to something else. 
How does this happen? Well, I think one way that this happens is potentially when we get a little bit squishy on our doctrine, to, to borrow Chris's description. When we say things like, I know the Bible says this, and I know that's, that's really the right understanding, but I'm persuaded by this person's argument that there's a new way to understand this doctrine. Right? That, that might be one way that we have that degree turn or more. But there's also a lot of social pressure right now to adopt positions on sexuality and identity and the family that contradicts God's good design. How are your thoughts on these issues being shaped? Do you, do you find yourself becoming more and more comfortable with what God would call sin because it seems to be everywhere? You know, maybe a one degree turning of your heart might be, you know, you just do you and I'll just do me and we'll just do what's best for each other. Or you might, you might say it this way, love is love. I'm not going to pursue that, but you're free to do that. And so again, there's a, there's a one degree turning at a time where your heart is turned from what God would show is good and right to something else. And this week, the, the terrible news broke of Robbie Zacharias' ministry. They put out a report where, you know, for years he had been uh, engaged in various sexual misconduct and abuse of, of various women. And you think, how could this possibly be? This man who has so boldly and faithfully proclaimed, you know, apologetic messages about God's character and his righteousness and his, his nature and all of these other things, how is it that he would, he would do this? Maybe it starts with a, a text message or a thought that he entertained for a long time. Maybe a joke that he told in a specific way that, you know, he could, he could play off if the person didn't respond the way that he might have wanted them to. And over and over and over, he continues to progress down that line. But what if someone on his team had the boldness and the courage to say, stop, repent, turn from your sin. Even if you're 80 or 90 degrees away, repent and turn now back to Christ. How much better would that have been for him and for others? We must, we must be on guard against these one degree turns. Because they have the potential to lead us in totally wrong directions and to arrive at totally wrong destinations. So I want you to think about your own heart for a second. What is, what is the Egypt that you most often turn to in your heart? Ask the Holy Spirit to, to bring clarity there. Ask the Spirit to reveal where that might be if you don't know. And what comforts are you elevating above what God might want for you or say is good? What are you turning to in these places for comfort instead of the Lord? You see, when you find yourself headed in the wrong direction and you feel your affections for God waning or your affections for sin increasing, what should we do? How do we fight against this? How do we, how do we reorient our hearts back to what is true and good. Let me encourage you that repentance and, and truth are the keys here. We must turn from our sin and its trajectory and instead turn back to God in faith and trust. The picture of repentance is turning from sin toward God. 
And, and it's not just that you have to do it like degree by degree, the opposite direction, where slowly, 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 you're, you're building your way back into God. No, he says, if you will come to me in repentance, you will have restoration in Christ. His blood covers us from our sin, and he makes us righteous. So even if you're 179 degrees away right now and you're harder, you're running far from God, the answer is the same. Repent of your sin and trust in Christ and you will have life and you will be restored. This very morning, that can be true for you. Don't continue to run or to continue to pursue that sin. Repent. Confess your sin to God. And he will forgive you and give you strength to fight it. We are, brothers and sisters, to expose sin in our hearts by bringing it to the light. And we can confess it to one another and to God so that we would genuinely be free. But it's not just confession and then doing it again and confessing again, but it's depending upon the Spirit to pursue Christ in righteousness and to turn from it. And he will help us through that Spirit. One of the most devastating lines in all of Stephen's sermon is when the people rejoiced at the works of their hands by sacrificing to this golden idol. It says, God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. He was so disgusted by their actions that he allowed them to pursue idols full on. This involved the worship of spiritual beings, the, the host of heaven from verse 42, which could also mean demonic forces. They're worshiping those things. It also included child sacrifice, such as was offered to Moloch or Molech. It's the same God, just translated or different spellings. But you see that in 2 Kings 16, 3, where the king of Judah himself, King Ahaz, offers up one of his sons to this false god. How awful would it be if God removed his presence or his restraining grace from us to let us pursue our golden idols? And if we're honest, I think we, we feel like there, there's times when God might get so fed up with us and so disgusted with us that he would turn us over to them. But I want you to know the truth. God will not do that if you are in Christ. All of that turning and disgust, it was put on Jesus at the cross. He would no more give his people up permanently over to their sin than he would deny the son that he sent to die for these people. See this, the father has purposed our salvation and he gave his son and his blood to cover us and he sends his Holy Spirit to indwell us. He will not allow that to happen to those who are in Christ. We are sealed by that spirit. We are purchased by his blood. He will not turn us over, but he will discipline us. As Hebrews 12, 6 says, and, and verse 10 says, but it says this, the, Lord's discipline, the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. And it's for our good that we might share his holiness. So he doesn't he doesn't cast us out and give us over, but he disciplines us and draws us back to himself as a loving father to his children. And so we see again that God is active and, and Moses was rejected, but ultimately the thing that Stephen's pointing us to is Jesus is better. And tragically, Stephen's message was cut short 
But here's where I think he's going. He's, he's trying to help the, the religious leaders and us see that Jesus is better. He's trying to help them see that, you know, you can't honor Moses if you're rejecting the one he sent. You can't honor God if you reject his son. But if you look to Christ and you love the son, then you will and can honor God. Jesus is better. Here's what Stephen has been driving toward this whole message. And, and I think what he wants us to hear and he wants the council to hear this warning from the past so that they would turn their hearts to the true worship of God. For as great as Moses was, Moses himself was pointing to a greater Savior, a greater one that God would rise up later who could actually fulfill the law, who could actually bring righteousness. Even as Moses was favored before God, as Stephen tells us, Jesus himself was the beloved Son of God and faithful Son of God. Moses was instructed with the best wisdom of his day, and Jesus is described as the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians 1.24. Moses was mighty in works and deeds, but Christ Jesus' works were even more significant, including our salvation. Moses defended his brothers in Egypt and beyond by taking someone's life. Where Jesus is the Savior who lays down his life for his brothers. He's the true ruler and redeemer of Israel, the one who perfectly led his people out from their sin to be made righteous. He's the one that performs signs and wonders, attesting to his identity. He's our true mediator between God and, and us, and he gives us oracles from the Father. In every way that Moses was a great leader, Jesus is better. And when we find our hearts being turned toward the draw of idols. We can rejoice that Jesus was perfectly faithful. He didn't deviate even one degree from what the Father had for him to do. So even though we fail, he does not. We were the ones who deserved to have God turn his face away from us, to suffer the full wrath of God for our sin. But Jesus is better. He took our place. He bore our wrath. He had the Father turn his face away from him so that you would never have to experience that for yourself if you're in Christ. And glory be to God that Jesus upon his resurrection and his ascension sends the Holy Spirit to indwell us. For where God's presence is, there is holy a holy ground, a holy place. So the spirit within you marks you as holy if you're a Christian because Christ has made you holy. There's nothing that will separate you from God's love in Christ Jesus. He might discipline you, but he does it as a son or a daughter so that you would reflect his glory. So this is where Stephen wants us to go and what he wants us to see in all of this that we would look to Christ Jesus, our hope, and see that Jesus is better because he never turns his face away from the Father. He's the one who truly leads the captives free. So let us rejoice in him. You see, to truly honor Moses, we must exalt Jesus, the one to whom Moses pointed. For Jesus is the faithful prophet. He is the sinless priest, and he is the righteous king who makes a way for sinners to be made righteous. So the invitation is come. Come to Christ Jesus. Receive him by faith. 
Turn from your sin and repentance and have eternal life in him. Let's pray. Father, Lord, would you, would you lead us as we sing and as we respond to sing with joy and faith, resting and trusting in Jesus, our King, the one who is truly better. Father, would you, would you be pleased by our worship, that it would be a, an offering, a, a fragrance that, that is delightful to you, Father, for, for we forsake the worship of golden caps and worship the true God this morning. Let us respond in joy and faith resting in the the finished work of our King and, and serving by the power of your Spirit, which you enable us to respond in faith. So lead us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.